Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we want to rejoice. We, we want to be happy and celebrate, not just because uh, it's the best time of year or because it's cold out or because there's Christmas lights up. God, we, we want to be a people that find deep joy in the fact that you've come to die for us and to save us. God, I pray you'd make us a people that, that deeply rejoice in who you are and what you've done for us. God, I, I pray that would give us joy and happiness and love for one another. And God, I pray as we continue to worship you and, and spend time looking at your word, I, I'm praying we would do that as we encounter you in your word. God, help us not to sit by passively as we encounter you in the word. I pray we would actively engage and look for you and listen for what you would say to us. And so God, I'm asking that you would help all of us to listen here today. God, I'm asking you to help me to teach. And God, I'm praying that our eyes would be fixed on you and that we would be in awe of what we see about you and your word. And I pray that all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, everyone, uh, Merry Christmas. I don't know if we said that yet or not. I, I'm really glad to get to do that because it's December now, and I kind of secretly did it last week, but uh, this week it's official, December. I get to say Merry Christmas, so there you have it. I'm saying Merry Christmas, and we are at I actually decorated my house last night, which was almost a Clark Griswold moment. I don't know if y'all have seen that. Uh, okay, three of you have. The three of you have seen that movie. Listen, I mean, I felt like I had the moment where with my kids I was like, like, um, and then it lit up and it was super disappointing. But I'm really happy about it, and uh, I decided 2020 and COVID are not going to stop me from celebrating the birth of Jesus, and I'm putting lights on my house just so someone's happy in my neighborhood for a little while. Um, anyways, I'm sorry, I'm going off on Christmas lights. That's not what we're here to talk about today. Uh, if you're visiting today, my name is Fias. I'm the lead pastor here at North Florida Baptist Church, and we're really glad that you've decided to join us today and, and check us out. If you're visiting, I would love to meet you after the service. I'll be down front. And there's a couple things I want to let everyone know about before we jump into our time in the Word. Uh, the, the first is this is the last week for presents. We're collecting presents to give to the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, probably it's been a couple months now. We've started canvassing the neighborhood, finding ways to serve our neighbors. We, we focused here on the Macon community and the Tallahassee Housing Authority that's right down the the corner over here at Pinewood Place, and trying to discover ways to serve. We found a boys and girls club there, so we've been collecting toys for several weeks, and this is the last week for that. We're sending those over to them on Thursday. So you still have till Wednesday. You can find Pastor Tommy. Can you raise your hand real quick? Find him if you need to get it later, and he'll have a way for you to get those, those presents to them. And the other thing is this. Um, we've mentioned it a little bit, but I, I need to put it on the front burner of your brain. One of the other things we decided to do is we were as a staff praying about what to do to serve our neighbors. One of the things we thought about, we looked at the Tallahassee Housing Authority. And here's what we want to do. We want to give every, every family in the Tallahassee Housing Authority a free ham just for Christmas. This is the thing to say, we love you, uh, we're praying for you, and we also want to invite them to our Christmas Eve candlelight service. So this Saturday... Uh, you, Basically, I'm asking you to bring hams, either this Saturday or next Sunday. And you can do it Saturday from 9 to 11 a.m. We're collecting them. It's called the Eagle Cafe, but we don't believe in signs apparently around here. So if you don't know where that is, uh, there's a giant flagpole in the entrance here with the big brick thing. It's that building right next to that flagpole over there. We're collecting hams from 9 to 11 on Saturday. Or if you don't want to drive out here Saturday morning, you can come out uh, Sunday morning, and you can bring it Sunday morning. And here's what we're doing. At 1 p.m., if you want to help deliver the hams, 
which would be awesome so there's not three of us, uh, we're going to go out and deliver the hams at 1 p.m. on Sunday. So we're only collecting them for one week because we don't want to store a whole bunch of hams and freezers all over the place. We want to get this thing done. So next weekend, don't forget, bring a Christmas ham. Um, and that's, that's all the announcements that I have. Uh, one of the things I love about Church at Christmas is a time we can focus on how to serve our neighbors and reach out to people. It's a great time of year to do that, and we want to engage that stuff. So next week, Christmas hams, un- you, don't, you don't have to cook it. I'm not telling you to cook it. Bring it frozen, right? Is that, are they frozen in the, or what? Just bring it cold, however that's supposed to be. I don't know how that works. Uh, so if it's supposed to be frozen, bring it frozen. If not, don't do something stupid because of what I said. Just bring a ham from the store. Okay, there we go. That's, that's all the stupidity I've got for at least five more minutes before I jump into this. Um, we're going to be starting a Christmas series right now. So we're going to jump into Matthew chapter one. And, and I got to be honest, as I really get excited about preparing for Christmas as we think about this time of year when things are, um, it's normally a really happy time. And we've been through a, a rough year as an entire world this year. It's, it's been a, a year of trials and difficulties. It, for us as a people in the United States of America, it's been through the chaos of elections. It's been through racial division in our, in our community. It's been through COVID. It's all sorts of fighting and division and anger and angst. And as we get to the end of the year, we're seeing more things. The same gets ramping up and things are getting more and more intimidating. And as we think about that, it's good for us to take a moment and pause and look at what Christmas means. And I don't mean just lights and loving one another. I mean the coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's supposed to be a big deal for us. And as we pause for that, that's something significant that God did. And as we pause for that, y'all have been doing a whole lot of things. It's been busy. I'm, I'm sure you're, dec- you're buying Christmas presents. Some of you are decorating. Some of you aren't because you're a Grinch. And that's okay. We'll, get a, we'll give you a pass this year for 2020. We, we've been collecting Operation Christmas Child boxes. I think y'all did like over 200 of those. We've been collecting money for a missionary we did, for the Leathers family. I think y'all did a little, almost 2,000. I'm not sure where that's at right now. We'll be sending that to them this week. We've been collecting hams and we're, we're doing all this stuff. And, and for a few weeks, I want us in the midst of the busyness to pause and to look at what it looks like when we think about what it means that Jesus is coming, we talk about the fact that he's the coming Messiah, that, that he came as this little baby. I know it gives us all the warm, fuzzy feelings with the trees and the lights and the packages, but there's, it's not just supposed to be sentimental. There's something deep about this. And so I want to take a few weeks and look at the coming Messiah. And this week will be a little bit different because we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. So you can open up in Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And as you turn there... Um, I'll, I want to tell you about a show my wife and I got addicted to for a while. I haven't watched it in a while, but it's called Long Lost Family. Anybody ever seen that show? Nobody. Okay. Wow. One. I got one up there. Okay. Me and Daniel Allison and my wife have this show that nobody apparently has heard of. It's called Long Lost Family. And here's how this this show works. Uh, The people on the show will help people find their uh, long lost family. I don't know if the name gave that away. If you didn't pick up on that. Listen, I can't help you this morning, all right? Um, and so you, they would show up, either they, they gave up a child for adoption or they were adopted or they had a sibling that was given up for adoption and these people would help them find their family. Some of them, it was awful stories. Like, like their parents would die and, and then they would get a blood test to find out their heritage. Then they would find out after their parents were dead that they were adopted. Like it was a complete nightmare. Like it was just, it's just brutal to watch that happen. And, and as I... As I watched that show, it was amazing to me 
how important our heritage is for us. I mean, some of you might not think that, but when you think about your family of origin and what you experienced growing up and, and what you were told, it could have been super dysfunctional. And that dysfunction or that abuse or that hardship or that disconnection shapes today for some of us, the way we interact with those around us and the way we view the world. And, and some of you had awful experiences and some of you had a totally different experience growing up. You had family that was loving and connected and strong. They, they put courage into you and showed you love. They, they supported you. And when you think about that, it's totally shaped the way you view life and people and encounter the world today. Like our heritage and our experience coming up have a deep influence on us. And for me, it's a big deal. I mean, Arabs really know how to do this. So my dad was from Jordan. And listen, they talk about family and heritage all the time. Some of you love to dig into your family history. You go to Ancestor.com. Anybody here? Any of those people? We'll assume you're, two of you and the rest of you are online because I know you do it. I know you get those emails. I know you go after Ancestry.com or 23andMe or whatever it's called. I don't think that's a dating website. I think that's actual uh, a DNA test. But you go in there, you dig into your family history. I don't know if you're hoping to find that you're related to George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or greatness. But let me tell you what you don't want to find in your family history. Actually, you probably already know, right? You, you don't want to find Ted Bundy in anywhere in that family tree. You don't want to find Bundy. You don't want to find any murders. You don't want to find Attila the Hun. You don't want to find any awful people in your family history. Um, and the problem is we all have those people, right? Uh, our family likes to hide those things. And as I was watching Long Lost Family, there was a story of this lady um, Dude, it was, it was brutal. I don't remember if her mom died and then she found out she was adopted or what, but she went to go find her, her adoptive mom. She wanted to know, why did you give me up? I just want to, she had a great upbringing, a great family, but she wanted to know, who's my real mom? What's the story? What, why, why did you give me away? Like, was it because you loved me and couldn't care for me? Or what was the deal? And listen, so most of those times, the stories are all the same. But as this story unfolded, you began to find out why this mom gave up this child. And it it was brutal, you guys. The, The mom got kidnapped by a guy, and she was abused, and she escaped at a gas station. And at the gas station, she escaped. They got help, arrested the guy. The guy went to jail and died. And, and here's this woman finding out that, listen, my, my background is that my mom was kidnapped by some monster. She became pregnant, and she kept me, but she, she let me go to birth, but she gave me up for adoption. Do, do you know what was hard to watch? It was hard to watch that lady hear the story. And what you saw happen, you almost saw it, physically happening on her face. Things were crumbling around her because she was asking this question, what does that mean about me? Like if if that that monster is related to me, like for this lady, my presence brings up all sorts of pain and heartache and terror. Listen, she didn't know what to do with a really, really bad heritage. Now, when I think about that and I jump into Matthew chapter 1, Here's what's going on in my brain. You're about to see the heritage of Jesus. And and here's what's amazing to me. What's amazing to me is God has the power to write his own genealogy here, right? Like, I want you to think about that. If you could write your own genealogy, what would you write? Are there any people you would kind of scribble off the tree, right? 
and you would substitute them for some really great people, like maybe you want Albert Einstein because it would be really great to have some of those genes and intellect. Or maybe you want William Wallace or, I don't know, maybe none of y'all are William Wallace people, but I would love William Wallace in my family tree. The dude is an animal. Like how it would be awesome to have great people like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, or I don't know who, Ronald. We met a dude that was related to Mitt Romney yesterday at Wendy's. Wendy's, you don't even, I don't even want to get into it, how we got into Mitt Romney, but like you want greatness, you want famous people, people with influence and wisdom and intellect, like that's a type of family tree you want, right? You can almost boast in it. Like if I'm, if you were writing your own family tree and you had the power to do that, there was a genealogy genie and you're able to rub that lamp and they said, listen, we're going to fix it all. Like all those crazy aunts and uncles gone, the awesome ones. Like it's, you're going to be the power family. Who do you want in the tree? If you had a genealogy genie, what would you do? And here's the deal. God has the ability to do that. He can pick the best of the best, the, the greatest the most knowledgeable, the most faith-filled people that have ever existed, that's what he could do. And as I read the genealogy, now now I'm not going to read the whole genealogy. That's like reading a phone book. We're not going to do that this morning. But there's a few names that stood out to me. They were curious. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. And listen, it's not going to sound exciting when I first read it. Stick with me. I I want you to see what names stand out. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac. Abraham's pretty awesome. Isaac's pretty awesome. They got issues. But anyways, let me keep reading. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram? Okay, so I'm going to keep moving. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, or Salmon, depending on how you say that. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon. By the wife of Uriah. Let me just hit pause right there. Uh, Pretty boring, going to be honest, like unless you just love that kind of stuff. This is just straight, like boring, boring, boring. That's not the type of thing you get up in the morning and you read the genealogy and like, man, that was a great moment with Jesus. I saw about Aminadab and Nashon and Sam and Salmon, whatever his name is. That's not a moment that warms your heart, but but there's four names that stood out to me. There's four people that were shocking to me that were in here. Like normally these things are almost all men, but there's four women in the verses that we saw. And I want to go over their story really quickly with you because I think we see something that stands out about these four women that's shocking about what God did here. Now I need to warn you, some of these stories are graphic. So if you're not ready for the graphicness, graphicness of the stories, you need to, I don't know what you need, put your finger in your ear or hit pause on the live stream or just brace yourself for it. But some of them are pretty graphic. The first one isn't. The first one is there, you see her, it's the, the woman Ruth, right? That's there in verse five, that she, Boaz married Ruth. And in case you don't know that story, I, I wanted to start here because we did a sermon series on this several years ago. In case you don't know the story, Ruth is amazing. Like, like here's Ruth. She's this woman, she's a Moabite. She's an outcast. She knows nothing about who God is, 
what he's like, what he wants from people, doesn't know his word, doesn't know how to be part of his people. As a matter of fact, the Moabites were actually enemies of the people of God. And and Ruth gets married to an Israelite because he leaves his country to go over where the Moabites are. And she, she marries her husband, dies. There's no doubt that Ruth grew up worshiping idols. I mean, she was totally ignorant of the ways of the people of God. And she follows her mother-in-law, her bitter mother-in-law, who's cranky and angry. She follows her back to Israel after her husband dies. And she gets there and she's poor. She's a widow. She's an outcast. Listen, she doesn't doesn't feel like she's ever going to fit in to these people. You ever felt that way before? This, this is a pretty normal thing to feel if you didn't grow up in church and you try to go to a church, you've, you've got this fear of like, I don't, I don't know how things work around here, right? Like there's all this insider language. There's these insider jokes. Like people have their saved seats that they've sat in or pew. They've sat in the same pew for 20 years and this fear that you walk into this building, you don't know what they're going to do. Are they going to make you stand up? Are there going to be snakes involved? Like, I've heard of these crazy places. Is someone going to come and put their hands on me? Like, they all seem to know when to stand up. They all seem to know when to sit down magically. They just do it automatically. They, they know what to say. They know the songs. They know the lingo. I don't understand the words that the guy up front is saying. They know one another. They, they know their seats. They know all of it. And, and you show up, and it feels like if you didn't grow up in church, that you will never get the hang of this thing. Like, you might get the hang of it a little bit, but it feels like you'll never fit in, like you never belong. Listen, that's Ruth times a million. Because it wasn't just showing up to church on a Sunday. She went to a whole new people and a whole new religion and a whole new way of life. Everything was foreign to her. And you know what she did? She just pressed on because she said, I'm going to follow God. I'm, wherever, whoever Naomi is worshiping, I'm going to worship that God. I'm going to be fully committed to him. And, and what happens with the story of Ruth? It's awesome. Man, she, she gets connected to Boaz and she eventually becomes the great-grandmother of King David, like David who killed Goliath, David. Like she gets to be like the grandma of the king of, like the, the dude, like the man, like that's Ruth. Now, now that may not sound like a big deal to you, but here's what I want you to hear. Like Ruth was an outsider. I want you to hear this. God has a heart for the outsiders. There's not an inside club where he says you've got to have this upbringing or this experience in life or this knowledge. And once you do that and you learn the lingo, then you can fit in and you get my check of approval. No, literally Ruth had none of that. All she had was faith and she just put it in God and he said, that's my girl. Like, listen, God's a God of people who are outsiders that don't feel like they fit in. But, but there's another name here. Her name's Rahab. That's in verse 5. This this lady was the great-grandmother of Boaz. Now, if you don't know the story of Rahab, listen, for some of you, this is review. but some of you, you've never heard this before. Uh, Some people would consider her a hero. Um, But when you think about her background, it's a little rough, right? Like, let let me tell you the story of Rahab. If, If Ruth was a story of an outsider who had faith, Rahab is a story of a complete outcast. Like, this woman doesn't fit in at all. Like, here's the story. Israel's been promised this land. So they're, they're finally leaving Israel and they're walking through the wilderness and they're showing up for the second time to come and get the land that God promised them. So they send two spies to the city of Jericho. 
These two spies get found out by the city officials, so they're trying to hide so they can live. Um, And they go to a woman that's a prostitute and hide in her house. And that woman's name, who was a prostitute's name, was Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute, is the one that hid the two spies. And and she told these two guys, she goes, listen, here's what I know. I know that God gave all of this land to your people. I know he's the real God and he's the true God and he's strong. Can I be a part? Now think about this. Israel comes in, destroys Jericho. Her and her family all get saved and get brought into the nation of Israel. I want to ask you a question. If you had the past of Rahab, do you think anyone would ever forget it? I want you to know, everybody knew who Rahab was. Everybody. She's the one Canaanite that gets to join our people. Everyone knew what Rahab did for a living. Let me ask you a question. What do you think that's like as Rahab tries to do life in the village with the other Israelite women and they know her past? You think they're nice about that? What do you think it's like for her to go get water, to go get food, to go to the market, to try to make friends? What do you think it's like for her to try to date and marry someone that's a good, clean, religious Jewish boy? Listen, Ruth shouldn't have fit in, ever, let alone. Maybe she would fit in and hide, but to be respected and honored, that sounds impossible. How do you think the men treated Rahab? Listen, when, when I look at Rahab, I... God chose a former prostitute to be part of the lineage. Does that shock you? Listen, it's not just that God cares about the outsiders. He cares about the totally broken outcast. And he says, listen, you come to me with faith, you're mine. I don't need you to jump through hoops. I don't need you to be good and perform. And I don't care how bad your past is. He's saying, listen, Rahab, I got you. Listen, that's what God has always been. His people are always supposed to be for the outsiders and the outcast. I wonder. I wonder if our church is a people that represents that well. Are we a place that people like Rahab and Ruth would actually come in and we would go overboard to connect them and let them feel welcome and invite them in? Or do we sit there and think, you know, I'll invite you in when you dress better. I'll invite you in when you, do, you don't, you're not so stupid about the Bible. I'll invite you in when you have the same views on me on everything. No, no, that, that's not okay. That is not the people of God. That is not how God works. God says, if you have faith in me, you're in. And I'll work on all the other stuff. But you don't have to jump through hoops to be accepted by me. You just have to have faith. Listen, I love the fact that Ruth and Rahab are in the genealogy of Jesus. But, but those two you might think are heroes. The third one isn't. We're, we're going from good to bad in this. The third one, let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 6 again. It says this, uh, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Her, her name's not even mentioned. And it's a really weird thing when you would say, Hey, uh, Solomon's mom was married to another dude. That's how she's named. It doesn't even say her name. If you don't know this name, her name is Bathsheba. Listen, uh, 
Ruth was actually the grandkid. Uh, Ruth's grandkid was David, and David, uh, that's the guy that killed Goliath. And, and here's what kind of happens. Um, when you look at this verse, you remember the story of this woman named Bathsheba. Let me remind you of the story of Bathsheba. So here's David. He's this awesome king. He's established. He's supposed to be at war, and he's up on his roof. Instead of being at his war, he's up on his roof daydreaming. And he, he looks over in the evening, and he sees this woman bathing on a roof. I don't know what she's doing on the roof bathing. Maybe that's normal. I don't know. But either way, this is totally awkward. And dude keeps watching. Totally awkward. I mean, like, this is totally offsides in every way, shape, and form. Like, David is super creepy at this moment, right? This is the dude that's outside your window that you go out and you threaten with an inch of his life and you call the cops on. Like, why are you looking in my bathroom, bro? Stop being a weirdo. But this is David. He's up on the roof. He's this great man of God is looking across and he sees this woman bathing. And here's what he does. He's like, I got to find out who she is. And they tell him. That, that, that's Bathsheba. She's married to Uriah, one of your army dudes. So David invites her over, and one thing leads to another, and the two of them have an affair. Listen, several weeks later, Bathsheba sends a letter to David and says, I'm pregnant. And how's that for a family tree so far? Really happy about this story? So David plans to cover it up. So he gets Uriah back from the battlefield and his plan is she's pregnant. I got to make the dude think it stinks at his kid. So he tries to get him every way possible to get him to go home and sleep with his wife. But, Dave, but Uriah won't do it. So you know what David does? He has Uriah murdered. Then he marries Bathsheba. Listen, I want you to think about this. The, the, most, the best way I can connect this for us today, there's a, a story that's in the news right now in Tallahassee about a woman that grew up here. Another story? She grew up, she got married, had an affair with her, her husband's friend. Then her friend took the husband out duck hunting and killed him. Finally, they both get arrested. Like whether she knew or not or planning, I, I'm, I, can't, I can't answer that. I don't know. But I you understand, that's Bathsheba. That, that's the person that becomes the line of the son of God? Bathsheba, an adulteress that, that probably might have possibly helped commit murder of her husband? How, do you think she ever wondered about that? Do you think she had guilt where she said, listen, if, if I would not have cheated on my husband, he would still be alive right now. You think she had guilt with that? You think there was guilt when that baby died? Like, listen, this woman is guilty. She's guilty and she's broken. Like, listen, David had like six other wives. Total weird issue. He had 20 kids. He had this awesome wife named Abigail that was super wise and super godly. Why didn't God pick one of her kids to be in the line? Why does he pick the adulterer? Why does he pick the marriage that's tainted? Listen tells us something about who God is, doesn't it? You, you understand that God has always been in, in, on the side of the broken? That should be good news for us because all of us are the broken. He's always been for the broken, you guys. Bathsheba was deeply broken and it was on public display for everyone all of her life. Man. God loves to redeem broken people. But that's not even the worst of the worst in the line of Jesus. 
It's one named Tamar. It's right there in verse uh, 2. It says this, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, she had twins, by Tamar. Now, now you might have known about Ruth. You might have known about Rahab. And you might have known about Bathsheba. But I'm not sure how many of you know about Tamar. Is that a normal story for y'all? Y'all know the story of Tamar? Listen, I am too uncomfortable to tell you everything that happened with the life of Tamar. But we're going to read some of it. Okay, so her story is actually in Genesis chapter 38. And listen, as we get there, you need to know this. This is something that would be on the Jerry Springer show. I don't even know if that show still exists. But it, it, this is rough, man. This is, not, this is not the counseling session that you want to be involved in as a pastor. I just want you to know right now. There's going to be cops involved. There's probably going to be fighting. Someone's going to get punched. This is a very uncomfortable family dynamic. So let me jump back over here to Genesis chapter 38. And we're going to start in verse 6. There's Judah. You know Judah, right? He's the brother of Joseph, like perfect and awesome Joseph, who was like the prince of Egypt, Joseph. They had a movie about him, cartoon, not true, but the movie was good, right? Like, or Charlton Heston, if you like Ten Commandments. Uh, no, that's Moses. Sorry, wrong, wrong person. Anyways, uh, so here's Judah, the brother of Joseph. I mean, this guy's definitely in the line of Jesus. That's the tribe of Judah. This is the granddaddy of them all, right? Um, so Judah has three sons. Verse 6, and Judah took a wife for Ur. Listen, the names. I just, Ur or Er? Like, hey, what's up, Ur? Like, okay, sorry. His firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. No idea what Ur did, apart from having a stupid name, he did something super wicked and God struck him dead, right? So he's married to Tamar. Now here's the awkward thing. He doesn't have any kids yet. And, and this law, the, the, the way things worked back then, totally uncomfortable, don't want to get into it for super long, but the way things worked back then is if your brother was married, didn't have kids, and he died, you had to go marry your sister-in-law. Really weird, okay? So you would go marry. The point was to take care of her, to make sure that he had kids that would inherit all of his land and inheritance. I, it was supposed to be taking care of the widow. It's just awkward. So the second son went and, and married Tamar. But he did something really bad. You have to figure that out on your own. God struck him dead as well. Not going to explain it to you. You're going to have to read it. And so here's Judy. He's got one more son. And this woman is just straight bad luck, dude. Like, my boys marry her, they die. They marry her, they die. I don't like this game. So what he tells us, listen, why don't you go back, go stay with your dad. When my youngest son gets older, then we'll bring you over and get married. He's hoping, dude, I hope he never, like, I need her to leave forever. She's like the worst. That's, that's his view of Tamar. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in dad's house, in your father's house, till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So she goes and she starts looking and noticing something. Dude, Shelah or Shamar, whatever his name is, he's, he's getting older now and they haven't called me to marry him, which again, Super creepy. Don't want to get into it. Uh, poor little kid. Uh, he's got to marry Tamar. Dad, please don't make me marry that woman. She kills people. Like, please, like this is completely awful for, for my boy here. Anyways, verse 12. 
in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So his wife died. And, and when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friends, Hira the Ad, Adulamite. Okay, so basically here's what happened. Things passed by. Judah's like, listen, man, my wife died. So now he's going to go shear the sheep. I, I don't know how it all connects. But basically Judah's wife dies. He's lonely. He's sad. He gets over it. Now he gets back to work. Let's go shear the sheep because we need wool. Verse 13. I need you to prep yourself for this. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garment um, and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Just here, let me explain that in normal people language. Listen, Shelah's grown up. And I know that he's going up, so I'm going to get dressed. I'm putting a veil so he doesn't recognize me. And I'm going to go sit on, by the side of the road where I know he's going to shear the sheep. Oh, man, this is just creepy. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Again, this is going to get Jerry Springerish. So he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. Uh, I'm not going to retranslate that for you, okay? For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So they basically get into this bargain. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant with twins. She sneaks back off to her dad's house and doesn't tell anyone. He has no idea who he just slept with. All of a sudden, she's pregnant with twins, and then he finds out you're the dad. I, I need you to think about this scenario for a moment. Listen, Ruth and Rahab, like, okay, they're heroes. Like, they help with the military thing. They had faith. They turned their life around. Bathsheba, maybe she was a victim. I don't know. He's not real good. But this woman and Jacob, or not Jacob, Judah, like, are you serious? Like, and, and here's what I want you to know. Instead of just saying in that part in Matthew, instead of just saying, when it says in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to skip back there. It says that Judah's the father of Perez and Zerah. It could have skipped over by Tamar. The writer intentionally, listen, it skips over every other woman. The writer intentionally puts her name in there. Guys, I got to be honest. That is shocking to me. If I'm making this up, let me tell you what I want to do. I just want to say, listen, Judah, the father of Perez, and Pharaoh, the, the father of so-and-so, and Perez, you know, that's, that's what I do. I, I skip Tamar. I bail on that all day long. But he puts it in. Why? I, I don't think it's because Tamar's a hero. I, I don't think it's because Tamar acted in faith. I don't think it's because Tamar was good and moral. Do you know why I think it's in there? It's the whole reason Jesus came to die. That every single one of us, we have things in our background that we don't want people to know about. We have thoughts in our mind that we want no one to see. We have feelings in our heart that are not okay. We have things in our family that wrap us up. Listen, here's the point that I want you to hear. I want you to hear a few things about this because there's a few lessons. Here's one of the lessons. Our God has always been a redeeming God. Always. This woman, Tamar, was not written off when she did this. 
Like, like think about that. It could have been Joseph's kids. Why not pick Joseph? Like the very next chapter in Genesis is Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So you got Judah being super immoral and you got Joseph being super moral. And guess who gets to be in the line of Jesus? Judah. Listen, he's always been about redeeming. You're not too broken for him to redeem. Your past is not too bad. Your heart is not too dark. I mean, it's definitely that bad and that dark, but it's not too bad and too dark because his grace is bigger and stronger than your sin. His grace is stronger than my past. His grace is stronger than my broken family dynamic. I want you to hear about the graciousness and favor and kindness of God to the broken and the outcast and the totally filthy. I want you to believe that over and over and over again. This is what he does. He saves and he redeems. So here's what that means for you. You don't have to run or hide from your past. You don't have to run or hide and pretend your sin doesn't exist. God can handle it. Do you hear me? Like, don't spend your life trying to show up at church and whitewash everything. Don't pretend like it's not there. Deal with it and take it to Jesus. He can handle my brokenness. There's more. The gospel can break you free of your family dysfunction. Like, I, I know Christmas is supposed to be an awesome time. But for some of us, one of the worst parts about Thanksgiving and Christmas is being with that part of the family. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Apparently not. Okay. Uh, You know what I'm talking about, right? There's that family that you try to break free of, but you can't. For some of you, it's really close. For some of you, it's further away. And, And the thought of having to deal with this at Christmas and Thanksgiving, it like sucks you down to this whirlwind of despair. Like here's all this happy time. You know the best Christmas gift I could give? Not seeing you for Christmas. Listen, I, I, I don't know what your family, I don't know how bad your family's been or your dysfunction is. I, I don't know what they've done to you. I'm not saying any of that's okay. I'm saying the fact the gospel can actually help you not be defined by it. I want you to hear that. The gospel can help you not be defined by the dysfunction of your family. I hope that's good news for some of you. Can actually change you. Listen, for some of you, I want you to hear this. The gospel can hear your kids no matter how much you screwed up. Like, I, I don't know what your past is as a parent or a grandparent. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I'm the dysfunction in my family. I want you to know, like the gospel is stronger than all of your mistakes for your kids. And if you didn't make any mistakes, I, I need a, some parenting classes. You made some parenting mistakes. You, you definitely messed up. But the gospel's stronger than that. It can overcome your weaknesses and failures with your kids and with your family. And the final thing is this, God has always used broken people. It's, it's the only people that are available to him. He's always used broken people to do phenomenal things. Every one of us is broken in one way or another. So stop trying to be perfect. Stop trying to minimize your brokenness. Stop trying to hide it and perform. 
Stop trying to ignore the family dysfunction you have and lean into Jesus because what he does is he redeems things. He wants the outcast. He wants the broken. He wants the dysfunctional and his gospel can heal it and fix it. There's one thing we learn from the genealogy of Jesus, apart from that he's a son of David, and, um, which is a big deal. It's this, that Jesus didn't whitewash and minimize anything. He allowed the broken and dysfunctional and outcast and oppressed to all be part of his line. Because his plan was to come and to deal with it all. So I don't know where you're at today, but, but if you're feeling worn down by family, if you're feeling worn down by the dysfunction, then I want you to run to Jesus and know that he's a lover of the broken and the outcast. Would, would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to guide us just in a moment of response. Listen, right now there in your seat, I don't know, you, you, might have, you might have some past things that just seem to haunt you and they've shaped you and defined who you are. Would, would you take a moment and would you ask Jesus to redeem that? Ask him to be the new thing that defined you and his love for you, not, not your family dynamic, not your past mistakes. Listen, some of you have felt like an outcast or an outsider your whole lives. And I just want to remind you, Jesus came and died on the cross so you didn't have to stay outside. He, he did that so he could bring you inside. Listen, would you trust in Jesus to move you from being an outsider to a family member? Don't let your lack of knowledge be the thing that keeps you out. Let your faith in Jesus be the thing that brings you in. Listen, some of you, you don't think you can be used by God because you've done too many bad things. You've you've got too much past and too much dysfunction. Listen, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that there is nothing that's too bad for him to handle. He he paid the full price by dying on the cross for your sins. You you're not too dirty, you're not too broken, you're not too stupid. If you believe that, I want, to, I want to challenge you to believe that Jesus is stronger than your brokenness and your past and your sin and your stupidity or whatever it is. You, you haven't messed up too much. His gospel is bigger than it, no matter what that mess up is. For some of you, God has cleaned you and he's changed you and he's broken you free from family dysfunction. Can you... Take a moment to worship him for being a God that goes after those people. And one last thing. Man, for some of you, you, you've never heard about a God that accepts us even though we're broken. You've heard about a God that has rules or harshness you've got to perform and live up to a certain set of standards. Listen, let me tell you the good news. This is why Jesus came. He came in the midst of broken people from a broken family. Came in the middle of all those things, not to have a pristine existence. He he came to live a perfect life and ultimately that led him to die on a cross 
And on that cross, God took all of my brokenness and dysfunction and sin and rebellion, all of it, and Jesus paid the price for all of it on that death on the cross. And he came back to life three days later. That's why Christmas exists. It exists because of the cross. And he came back to life so that he could offer all of us forgiveness and acceptance and relationship. And all you have to do is place your trust in Jesus. You don't have to perform or pretend. You have to go to church more. You need to show up and trust Jesus. And he says he'll clean you and he'll make you new. He'll give you a new heart and he'll give you the ability to obey by giving you the Holy Spirit. That's all really, really good news. Doesn't mean your family will get better. Doesn't mean your past disappears. It means that Jesus is with you in all of it and he forgives you for it and he brings you close to him. Listen, if you never placed your trust in Jesus and had a real encounter with him, can I encourage you right there in your seat today? Would, would you just ask him to forgive you and ask him to save you? That's why he came. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I, I'm just grateful that you use broken people. God, we're grateful that you don't write people off because of dysfunction and brokenness in their family. God, thank you that you redefine us because of the gospel and what you did on the cross and not because of our upbringing. God, you don't define us by our past. You define us by being in you. God, that's good news. And I pray we would have joy today that when we think about celebrating you coming to earth as a baby, I think I pray that we would celebrate the fact that you were coming to make us whole and to redeem and restore the outcast and the broken and the sinners. God, I, I pray we'd be a people that would worship you deeply for being that kind of God. And I pray that all in Jesus' name, amen.